0: So kia ora koutou. welcome to our special COVID podcast brought to you by the University of Otago Rural Postgraduate Programme. As clinicians, this is a time brimming with the unknown and anxiety. Between juggling our usual clinical work, taking care of children and whānau, learning about an illness most of us have never seen, and preparing our individual workplaces and staff, I think it is safe to say we're all feeling a little scared. Many of you will have listened and read much material about the international experience of COVID and the recommendations for our leading scientists and academics. In this podcast, I hope to address issues particularly pertinent to our rural context and answer questions raised by colleagues about COVID and how we can prepare ourselves and our workplaces. I'm very pleased and grateful to be joined by infectious disease specialist and very nearly rural hospital specialist, Dr. Jared Green. Jared is generously sharing some of his time and expertise with us. Jared works at the Waikato DHB and has been at the heart of the COVID preparations, in particular dedicated to infection prevention and control and contingency planning. And before we get underway, we we want to recognise that there are limitations um, to the advice that Jared can give, um, given that there is a lot of uh, lack of evidence, um, given that we're dealing with something so new, and there is a lot of uh, guidance within HDHB and from the Ministry of Health. So welcome, Jared, and again, thank you. So firstly, Jared, um, have you to date had any experience with COVID patients, either by giving advice over the phone or, or direct clinical experience? Yeah, we have a few
1: inpatients in the District Health Board at the moment. I haven't provided direct uh, direct care as such, but have been involved in processes around them.
0: Great. And what's your experience of that being like? Um, I think there's a considerable amount
1: of anxiety uh, about COVID, uh, particularly handling of process, uh, PPE, uh, staff exposure and things like that. Uh, the cares provided to patients we've encountered thus far have gone well, but it's a small number of patients, and they're primarily looked after by a respiratory service or actually being looked after by our rural hospital colleagues at the moment.
0: Great. And I guess that really sums it up. There is a lot of concern around issues around um, around PPE, and I guess a lot of this is anticipatory um, anxiety about where, what we're yet to face and, and the numbers that we may have to handle. So I guess first if we sort of take a bit of a look at it from a scientific point of view, um, I wondered if you could just summarise what we we know to date about the virus as a pathogen, um, particularly focusing on some aspects around um, how long it uh, lasts on surfaces um, and and what actually is the mechanism of of spread.
1: Yeah, so all of us have seen a patient with a type of coronavirus infection repeatedly over and over and over again. Uh, Most common coronaviruses uh, that uh, we encounter in clinical practice cause illnesses like the common cold. Um, The SARS-CoV-2 virus is closely related to the SARS-CoV-1 virus that caused outbreaks in Southeast Asia and Hong Kong about 17 years ago. this one's a little bit unique amongst uh, the coronaviruses. Well, it's not so much unique, but it shares a lot of traits in common with MERS and SARS-CoV-1, in that they're zoonotic infections that have managed to mutate and achieve human-to-human spread. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 is thought, to have been, uh, a bat, is thought to have been a bat. thought to have been a bat coronavirus uh, originally might have passed through an intermediate species and infected humans and have modified its genome in such a way that it can achieve a human-to-human spread very efficiently. Um, The duplication number of SARS-CoV-2 is thought to be about 2.5, which is uh, more than twice as as infectious as influenza in terms of numbers of cases that uh, one index case can cause within a a certain doubling time. would you like me to talk more about uh, exposure, Matilda, or kind of how long it lasts on surfaces more?
0: I think it's important just to go over how long it lasts on surfaces, but also um, about uh, spread um, and particularly where it likes to exist in the host.
1: Okay, just didn't want to make sure I wasn't missing any any uh, nuances of the question. So this is droplet spread, and it needs, it, it needs to kind of come in in contact with our mucosa primarily, so eye mucosa, mouth mucosa, nasal mucosa, in terms of spread, it will be contained in expectorated droplets, say if you cough or sneeze. It's not an airborne or aerosol spread infection unless an aerosol forming procedure is performed, and we'll talk about that later. It's got an affinity for the ACE2 receptor in humans, and that's thought to be its, one of its modes of entrance into lower respiratory tract cells. Um, in terms of its persistence in the environment, um, it can last a long number of minutes on uh, biological surfaces, such as your hand or fruit. On stainless steel, it's thought to persist for in an infectious state for up to six hours. Um, it can be detectable on surfaces for up to three days, but it's not thought to be pathogenic at that point in time. On surfaces like copper, it might last a long number of minutes to short number of hours. If an aerosol is created, say, um, you do an induced sputum on someone, it's thought to remain airborne for three hours in, small dro- in, uh, in a small aerosol form.
0: Can you just clarify and remind us just the difference between a droplet and an aerosol? And perhaps that's a good opportunity to clarify what would be procedures that might lead to the formation of aerosols.
1: So an aerosol has got a very loose definition and that's something that can remain airborne for an extended period of time. And, um, in terms of infection control and infectious disease, an aerosol of less than five microns is thought to be um significant enough to cause um, airborne spread of illness, such as measles or tuberculosis. Droplet is a pathogen is spread inside a cluster for a very short period of time, expects to be at almost no risk of exposure outside a sphere of around a metre. So an air, a droplet will remain airborne for a very short period of time and fall to a surface. An aerosol can remain in the air for many hours.
0: Jared, I'm fully just the internet just did something bizarre then. I just want to make sure we caught all that. Just when you were starting with the definition of a droplet, that's the wee bit that we missed. So if you could, just wouldn't mind starting from there.
1: Um, a droplet is when basically the pathogen is enclosed in a cluster of water cells uh, or sputum or, or something like that where surface tension can be exhibited those can only remain in the air for a very short period of time once they leave the infectious subject and they'll rapidly fall to a surface. So, for instance, if someone were to cough or sneeze out droplets containing SARS-CoV-2, you'd expect them to rapidly fall to the ground and you'd expect negligible risk of exposure if you're outside a sphere of about a metre around the, the point of emission.
0: And hence the advice we've been given around the the safe distance between um, between individual people.
1: Yeah, I think those recommendations are justifiably more conservative than the one metre I've said, which is a loose number.
0: So can you explain some of the limitations around testing? I mean, there's been a lot of discussion around the um, the use of wide ranging testing, um, and and also uh, the fact that false negatives certainly occur.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, these are rapidly assembled tests in a very moving field. So I think some authors quote uh, sensitivities for positive tests in people who have COVID-19 of in the order of 70 to 75%. Uh, the specificity for people who do not have COVID-19 is thought to be similar. So in the order of 70 to 80%. So there's a lot of scope for false and false positives and false negatives. Um, in terms of which are the most desirable specimens, I think your chance of getting a test with a good positive or good negative predictive value is higher from the lower respiratory tract, so expectorated sputum. Uh, nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal swabs are slightly less reliable. I don't think the testing is of good quality enough to have, um, say, if someone fulfills the case Definition like the clinical criteria are very suggestive, their exposure criteria is very suggestive, and they have a negative test with a high pretest probability. Those tests need to be taken with a grain of salt and repeated after several days. Um, the cases that have been, the earlier cases that have been admitted in uh, New Zealand or overseas, have often had negative initial testing on upper respiratory samples, but positive testing on lower respiratory samples. Um, I think, practically, if you have someone with a very casual risk and a very loose uh, clinical criteria who's poorly symptomatic doing quite well in an ambulatory setting, at the moment, a negative test will tell you who is well enough to self-isolate at home during the lockdown.
0: So can you just clarify more me, there are, um, from what you're saying, I understand there are some false positive tests. Was that correct?
1: Um, I can't really comment about false positive tests too much at the moment. I haven't encountered any in clinical practice with all tests, um, particularly when they're newly validated, that will occur. Um, It will be very difficult to refute a positive test without good reason at the moment.
0: Great. So at the moment, we should really just work on the basis that there are false negatives, and we need to be wary of that. Yep.
1: And I think if you're if you're really, really, really concerned, and the possibility is really strong, and someone's had close exposure to a confirmed case of COVID and has a dry cough and a fever, I would not completely rely on a negative test from an upper respiratory sample to make sound management or infection control decisions. I'd need to repeat, think, and discuss it with uh, with an expert
0: or a friend. Jared, I think that leads us nicely into the questions I was going to ask you about the clinical course, the clinical picture that we might anticipate seeing, particularly from what I've listened to, uh, COVID seems to follow a pretty predictable timeline in those who have um, clinically significant illness. If you could just walk us through what we might expect to see.
1: Okay. So the mean incubation period is around five days. That's Um, has been documented to be as short as three days and as long as longer than 14 days. I can't remember the exact figure. Most cases develop clinical illness within 14 days of infectious exposure. There might be a pre-symptomatic shedding infectious period of 24 to 48 hours prior to that. Um, People tend to develop fever first then dry cough, Uh, people who develop more serious manifestations of illness will develop increasing breathlessness and potentially ARDS, uh, often around day 12 of illness. Um, The early data from China, that's all comers in Wuhan, suggested that maybe 80 or more percent of people would suffer a mild illness that would be self-limiting. Around 15% might require hospital admission. Uh, around 5% might require critical care, but the death rates or case fatality rates reported early on were in the vicinity of 2%. In Italy, they've had a very different experience and their case fatality rate is closer to 8%. Their critical illness rate is closer to 20%. Um, That might result from that being rampant in uh, older populations there. Um, People, young people, seem to do relatively well with this infection. Um, the death rate, however, or case fatality rate for over 80s can approach 40%. Um, gen- in general, if you see a walk-in illness with COVID, you might expect them to have symptoms for up to 14 days. Um, and people that have a mild uh, illness, they will have intense viral shedding up to about day five, where it will drop off very sharply. But in terms of, uh, there's a lot of unknowns in terms of how long someone might remain infectious.
0: So, Jared, just a a few questions with regard to that and something I was listening to there um, was some thoughts that there was a particular pattern with regarding the fever. I'm not sure if you'd wish to comment on that. Um,
1: The the fever pattern, um, yeah, I, I... I'm not too sure about the fever pattern, to be, to be honest. I'm told that once you've seen a lot of it, it becomes very much a characteristic thing. I think the description of the illness overall seems to favour it being dry cough with fevers, people might experience some breathlessness late, the chest X-ray findings associated with acute illness requiring hospital admission tend to show a bilateral, subtle, reticular nodular pattern and maybe
0: as rural practitioners, Gerald, um, I think one of the things we're anxious about is identifying these patients who are unwell and perhaps hypoxic and um, may be requiring ventilatory support. Um, do you have any comments to make about the time frame that we may have to deal with between when someone's presenting hypoxic and when they may need ventilatory support? And I'm asking that, I guess, in, in what kind of timeframe can we just support with oxygenation and arrange for uh, for transfer to someone somewhere where they can be supported in that way?
1: Yeah, people don't tend to present hypoxic in the first week of illness. Some people with more moderate disease only require nasal prong or hudson mask oxygen therapy the warning signs with this would be if someone is deteriorating on the oxygen therapy that you've provided within a few hours if people are developing ARDS with uh, COVID-19 it can follow quite a precipitous course requiring escalating oxygen doses, intubation rapidly, and uh, quite a number of patients develop quite profound myocardial dysfunction if they do require critical care and intubation. Something to be very mindful of in the rural hospital environment is your resource management. I think things that would usually be in our bag of tricks for managing people at the front door would be high-flow nasal prongs, uh, CPAP or BiPAP, um, there's no proven utility of those treatments in this type of illness, though there are some reports from Italy that they might be useful temporising measures and might actually be the maximum the ceiling of care that some people require in order to stabilise them before they improve. But they do come with quite a risk, however. They're both aerosol-generating procedures, and in the setting where you've got no negative pressure environment uh, limited access to PPE, uh, limited specialty support, and a limited number of staff. The infection control implications of uh, choosing your oxygen or temporizing therapy poorly could be quite profound in a week's time.
0: So at this stage, when we're not, um, the the system isn't saturated. I guess we need to be thinking about early transfer, so that if we get to the point that people are developing ARDS and need that support, they're in the the right environment but then
1: if yeah if you're thinking of high flow or cpap i think your patient is someone who probably needs to be evacuated while you've got a chance because your window will be very short potentially
0: yep and i guess we just need to anticipate that things may change as as resources become more limited and hopefully we avoid that situation um, I, I'm, I'm very aware of the relationship between um, age and mortality. I was wondering if you could comment on particular comorbidities that may put patients at higher risk. Um, the
1: recent papers published have focused on hypertension and diabetes as particular particular risk factors, but I'm not sure how much to read into that. It seems more intuitive that people with chronic respiratory disease or or chronic cardiac failure might be people who you would expect to be at higher risk. Um, in terms of the cohort studies done to date, beyond age, there really aren't any uh, solid predictors of adverse outcome with a relative risk of greater than two that, that aren't age. So I think being over, being over 65 prejudices your outcomes, being over 80, uh, your survival is basically a coin toss.
0: So I guess we're all pretty feeling pretty anxious about preparing our our hospitals and our environments, and each of us works in a very unique place. Um, but I guess just with broad brushstrokes, um, if you've got any advice about steps we can take to prepare our our hospitals, uh, our rural GP practices, um, with particular attention, I guess, to to systems um, and staff education.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think that the best thing to do would be familiarise yourself with your local PPE guidance on what to do for management of patients with COVID-19. It is spread by droplets. So that will be little flecks of phlegm or sputum that come into contact with your hands that you maybe wipe across your eye or fall on your lips or wipe across your lips. So it needs to be In contact with your mucosa to be spread unless you've aerosolized it so the things that are important for ppe will be a surgical mask eye protection disposable gown and gloves that's for routine uh, routine patient cares airborne precautions are recommended by most centers if you're intubating someone They're on high-flow nasal prongs, CPAP. They've had some upper airways instrumentation or they've had an induced sputum. So that would be the N95 or P2 mask, good eye protection, uh, the disposable gown and gloves. The doffing and donning process should follow your local protocol for consistency's sake. Um, Diligence to the five five moments of hand hygiene is going to be your friend uh, in general clinical medicine and over the coming months dealing with COVID-19 in terms of um, preparing your institution uh, it would be always worthwhile being familiar with what steps are being uh, uh, taken for escalation of the the system preparedness like what are your staff backup plans Um, what do you do if you have a patient what is your pathway for caring for them how will you transport them from your your emergency department or your assessment area to a side room with droplet precautions, and knowing what your key relationships are, like who's going to be your key advice person at your referral centre in the Waikato. It's respiratory medicine in the first instance, and we're tending to do infection prevention control advice, uh, but it will differ elsewhere. Um, managing staff anxiety, I think, is a, a real issue in a lot of places at the moment. So making sure that you're talking to your other staff members, checking that they're okay, seeing if there's anyone who's particularly worried or particularly vulnerable, and things like that. One thing also to be mindful of in in your health boards is there's probably a lot more planning has gone into this than is visible to you. So having been sitting on SIMS panels for the last best part of the last month, I can tell you that finance needs a a contingency plan. procurement of PPE needs a contingency plan. So there's a wide systemic response going on uh, most places or all places, I imagine. In terms of managing uh, your clinics or your general practice, you'd have to take guidance from your local PHO or or, or institution. But I think moving as much as you can to virtual is a potential strategy for minimising face-to-face contact um, minimizing reviews that don't need to be done, like I don't think anyone needs the blood pressure check for the next month uh, unless it's been rampantly out of control, um, making sure that you've got a good uh, general practice uh, hygiene process and that you've got access to PPE. If you are working in a, a CBAC at the moment, uh, your local PHO and DHB should have a PPE policy that you can be familiarized with, Quite quickly. Um, have either of you been working in CBACs or seeing primary practice patients for screening lately?
0: I should just explain why um, Jared's saying both of you, Rory Miller, is in the background as our producer.
1: Sorry, I didn't realise Rory was invisible, Sorry. Yes, I think there's a a lot going on, a lot going on out there. I think it's not possible to be 100% familiar with what everyone is doing. But I think being familiar enough with your own processes to be able to do what you normally do just a little bit better is going to be the most important thing in the coming months.
0: And Jared, I think think that that, um, maintaining relationships with your secondary or tertiary hospital um, and almost putting your hand up to remind them that you are there. We we attended a meeting today and we just needed to remind them about our small hospital. um, And and we had been forgotten in some areas and it it wasn't intentional. Um, And I think connecting with your your bigger, larger emergency department and, and making sure you're sort of on the same page Certainly one of the things we had to consider today was if we do run into the situation where someone needs intubation, where that's going to take place in our emergency department that doesn't have um, a negative pressure room or particularly well-equipped isolation rooms.
1: In situations like that, it's going to be difficult because you're essentially condemning that room to not being used for hours and having to send someone in airborne precautions into terminal clean that environment. So I think the in terms of what you can do in that environment, making sure you have your PPE on before you even think about touching the airway. And the same goes for CPR, actually. If you think someone has COVID, you need your airborne precaution PPR, PPE on before you start. It's so the rate of healthcare-associated infection may be quite high from the Italian experience.
0: Yeah, I think that was something that came to the to our attention at the meeting today. That that rushing in um, to treat a, a crashing patient, we must put a PP on first. That takes precedence in this kind of situation. Our maintaining our health and well-being so that we can conti- continue to deliver safe care to our other patients.
1: Yeah, I think in terms of in terms of resuscitation of someone unwell with uh, COVID. Presents It would be worthwhile ensuring that your DHB or hospital has some kind of policy guidance around that because people that do get to the point of requiring resuscitation with COVID typically have profound myocardial dysfunction and uh, it is unlikely to go well even in patients who are relatively young
0: thanks, Jared. Um, I guess you know PPE has created quite a lot of um, uncertainty and issues for uh, for us as we haven't had to think about it so carefully in the past. You've mentioned um, some situations that that we should be wearing our full PPE. Can you just recap that for us again, um in what situation should we be donning full PPE at this point in time when we're not exposed to a large number of obvious cases?
1: Okay, so is that, sorry Matilda, was that question about dealing with patients you suspect COVID or patients in general?
0: So I guess we'll start with um, a nice clean thing where we know we definitely should be putting PPE on it. In in what situation should we definitely be putting PPE on? And then I guess I'll specifically ask about the more grey areas.
1: Yeah, so if you suspect someone has COVID to the point that you want to test you should approach them with standard and droplet precautions. So that's gown, gloves, surgical mask, eyewear. So I think something that we're going to have to increasingly use for acute care going forward uh, is screening questions like, have you been in touch with a COVID case? Do you have a dry cough or fever? Uh, Have you travelled in the last fortnight? Those can be... Screening questions you can ask from more than two metres away to get a sense of what's going on in addition to your your basic triage. Um, For patients you are thinking of intubating or performing CPR on or doing aerosol generating procedures, um, there's a good definition of those available online. Um, They're usually high flow nasal prongs, um, CPAP, BiPAP, um, upper airway instrumentation, high-speed dental work with um, um, oscillating mechanical drills uh, and induced sputum. You would want to use standard plus airborne precautions. So that's an N95 or P2 mask, good quality eyewear, disposable mask and uh, disposable gloves, and following the five moments of hand hygiene when when you're doing both of those is important and knowing your institutional donning and doffing process is very important for this. Um, there's guidance online, but it's important that we all drink the Kool-Aid at the moment and follow our institutional process with some degree of unity.
0: Thanks, Jared. Um, I guess there's some other situations that create a bit more uncertainty. So I'll start with the situation. Should we be wearing some level of protection when we see all our patients at the moment?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a very common question at the moment. And a lot of professional societies are giving their own infection uh, protection advice, which is plucked from the air. Um, The rates of COVID are low in the New Zealand population at the moment. There is not much community spread established at present. The benefits of using a mask uh, for all of your patient contacts at the moment will be low and you'll chew through PPE. And as soon as that mask is saturated or starting to get damp, it's useless. Often when people do put a mask on for everything, they get really slack about their hand hygiene and the hand hygiene is gonna be the most protective thing during the pandemic. Um, I think donning PPE if there's some suspicion is reasonable. You can pick up most of the concern with screening questions and considering the clinical scenario. Um, a lot of patients are being encouraged to, to call ahead nowadays, so you can probably get a sense of what's necessary. But if you're dealing with a patient with no respiratory symptoms, no febrile symptoms, and no contact history, um, the PPE is not going to offer you any protection uh, in and above good hand hygiene. Um, we're going to have to be very diligent with our resource management in the coming months, because if we waste PPE on No risk exposures. We run a real risk of running into the Italian problem and not having any at the pointy end if we need it.
0: What about the situation when we have someone who perhaps is a return traveller and they're presenting with other um, problems? No respiratory symptoms, no fevers, perhaps some abdominal pain.
1: Mm. This is a novel... um, You could call it a novel problem. I think it's worth paying attention to that, and I think it's worth in that person asking a few screening questions to see if they've had any exposure. Travel itself is considered an exposure, but you have to individualise it and, uh, yeah, think about it carefully. But I think the majority of people who are return travellers who don't have respiratory symptoms, who don't have a snuffle or a cough are probably going to be quite low risk and we have to manage our PPE resource. So I think the being aware of it's going to be your friend, but I think hypervigilance will cause a little bit of anxiety and it's about recognizing what's anxiety and just trying to actually triage your risk exposure. Most people who have presented with COVID have had clear respiratory symptoms or symptoms of fever.
0: Just a really practical question, Jared, and this is probably opinion-based as well, but what about our work clothes, our scrubs, or our usual home clothes that we we wear to work? Okay, just to bring them home in a bag and pop them in the washing machine? Uh,
1: Public Health England's got guidance on what to do with your work scrubs and uh, work uniforms, and that is don them at work, doff them at work, put them in a disposable plastic bag, Put them in the dish, the washing machine by themselves with only your work clothes and nothing else. Don't overfill the washing machine and put it on a hot wash and then tumble dry or iron your clothes. That's not an evidence-based recommendation, but that's the best guidance I can find for that question because it's becoming an increasingly common one. Um, I think not... I wouldn't expect COVID if you've used your PPE well or SARS-CoV-2 to persist on your clothing if you've used PPE. With proper use of PPE, the risk of carrying infectious material out on your work clothes should be negligible.
0: Thanks, Joe. Rory and I are lucky because we iron all our clothes before we go to work, so we'll be just fine.
1: Rory, Rory always looks like he's ironed everything he's owned the morning before he's worn it.
0: Um, I just wonder if we can move on sort of to a more clinically based question again you know we're, we're really wary that this is, is not necessarily evidence-based but just some sensible guidance around this so we've addressed that hypoxemia is going to be a, um, a common problem that we encounter when dealing with these patients when they become unwell. Um, what are the current recommendations around treating that hypoxia as far as oxygen delivery goes? are there dos and don'ts and what would your comments be be around the use of perhaps Evo and non-invasive ventilation with regards to that risk of um, aerosol generation?
1: Hmm. That's that's a good question. I think evidence for anything when dealing with COVID is a little bit scanty and it's evolving so quickly it's possible to impossible to keep up with all of the literature. Most of the literature isn't of high quality, though. So you have to take any of this discussion, I guess, for the whole, the whole session with a grain of salt. Um, as regards oxygen therapy, um, escalating from nasal prongs to Hudson mask to non-rebreather seems like a relatively benign uh, treatment that won't increase you to uh, expose you to increased uh, risks of uh, healthcare associated infection um the italian experience has suggested that high flow nasal prong oxygen or non-invasive ventilation can be useful both as temporizing measures prior to intubation and as a, as a ceiling of care they do come with increased risks though the risk of aerosolization is present due to the flow rate with high flow nasal prong oxygen or, or ervo it's uncertain how how strong that is um Again, it's it's thought to be aerosolizing, and those aerosols can persist in the air if they're created for up to three hours. There's some weak literature that suggests that droplet nuclei created by EVO might only land a foot or two away from the patient, but I can't really comment about that. A lot of authors are suggesting not using it due to infection control risk. Non-invasive ventilation, while it may have a role in Uh, The treatment and temporization of these patients does come with risks. It is an aerosolizing procedure. It will take out the room you're using for quite some time, and the risks of staff exposure are, are increased. Not as high as ventilation, I don't think, or sorry, intubation, I don't think, but it's not a benign treatment. I guess if you're managing someone like this in your rural emergency department, it's going to be a really difficult call at times. Do I use what I have available? particularly if I'm a sole staff member or just have a few people with me uh, while I intubate this person, I'm going to potentially have to create an aerosol and expose staff to risk here. At that point, before doing anything like that, I'd probably request specialist advice because there is a a blowback and a resource limitation beyond what you're immediately doing, and that will be staff exposure. And when you're running on a more fragile uh, staffing system, a week or two after that that intervention, that could create problems for your ongoing care.
0: Thanks. I, I think also we've got to consider anything that we uh, put in place with regards um, non-invasive ventilation or EVO. You know, we have to then consider how we're going to transport that patient and if we've actually got the capacity to continue delivering that therapy for transportation.
1: Yeah. For example, the um, considerations we're going into in a, in a larger uh, institution uh like ventilation systems like which areas have connected ventilation what procedures or airway support could we or oxygen support can we provide in this particular area uh, and we're having to look at ventilation plans to figure out what's safe to give in our contingency planning elsewhere so the uh, the potential infection control implications of those therapies are quite quite marked mm-hmm.
0: Jared, I think we've sort of brought up the topic now of transfer, um, and obviously this is fraught. Um, I wondered if you wanted to comment a little on what we can do to try and ensure safe transportation, not only of our patients, but um, for our staff members who are involved as well. What things in particular should we consider while we're preparing a patient for transfer um, and what the patient should have on them as PPE for transfer?
1: Okay. So um, patient transfers a a risky time in people who don't have infectious diseases, as you know. Um, The problems with uh, ambulance and aeromedical transport, particularly between institutions for long periods of time, are impressive. I think for Transport or transfer in general, whether it's uh, down the corridor or in and out of ambulances, I think patients should wear surgical masks that would minimise the number of droplets expressed into the surrounding environment and minimise the infection control risk. Uh, as regards um, ambulances, if you have to have someone sitting in the back of the ambulance with the patient, they should be in full droplet precautions unless um, you're performing an airway generating procedure, and I'd really think carefully about even nebulizing these people in a confined space, and that applies to the emergency department. Use, use spaces if you need. Um, do ambulance officers need to have PPE on? If they are assessing the patient, definitely they would need droplet precaution PPE if they had a suspected case of uh, COVID to get them in and out of the ambulance. If they're more than a meter away, and the uh, air and uh, aerosol performing procedures like nebulization aren't being performed behind them, they can probably don and doff before getting into the cab and use diligent hand hygiene. The same applies for aeromedical retrieval. If there's a, a blind you can use to separate the cockpit or a hard barrier and they're more than a metre away and there's no aerosol generating things being done, the pilot themselves might be able to follow hand hygiene. If there's any risk of uh, droplet exposure because of a confined space, the staff member in there should be in uh, standard and droplet precautions uh, or full um, full uh, airborne precautions uh, if there's any aerosol forming procedures being performed. Um, I do at times notice that I'm saying standard and airborne. Standard is kind of like how you'd manage, or sorry, contact and 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 droplet or contact and airborne. Contact refers to gown, gloves, hand hygiene. Droplet adds the mask and glasses. Uh, airborne, different mask, different uh, same glasses. But yeah, the Ministry of Health has got some reasonably good guidance on on transport. A lot of it relates to potential contamination of the environment who's sitting within what distance of the patient, uh, what needs to be done in there, what are the distances between the driver and and the patient and what's likely to be needed um, during the transfer process. If it's a small distance of less than a metre, so everyone needs to be in contact and droplet precautions.
0: Thank you, Jared. Um, I'm just going to warn Rory that I'm just going to ask him to see if he would like to add any questions um, if he thinks there's areas that um, Jared and I have not covered. Um, But firstly, I've got a special question from Rory. Um, He'd just like your credible and, um, you know, expert, well-evidenced opinion on beds.
1: And I need Rory to lean back just a little bit so I can appraise what he's got going on at the moment. That's quite impressive. Um, Seems to have grown a little bit since the middle of last year. Um, Public Health England's got some really good guidance on mustaches and beards. I think the problem with having any facial hair at the moment is it will ruin the fit of your, your mask. Um, and make your, your N95 mask ineffective. Um, the amount of stubble I've got, if I keep this growing tomorrow, is thought to be unacceptable in terms of um, mask fits for, for N95 masks. Um, having a little band here seems to uh, not correlate with poor mask fits. Handlebar mustaches do take the make the mask a little bit uh, less effective. Some people have... Um, Suggest that you can have a shortish moustache but I think a little bit of hair here is about the only thing you can get away with if you want a good mask fit so clean shaven boys
0: so Jared's indicating that a tiny, tiny little bit of hair below your lower lip is um is okay, but um, Rory may not, not meet the requirements. Yeah,
1: and that's that's Public Health England's take. I don't know the evidence base for that, but they've got some beautiful documents available in their uh, their COVID resources if you um, can't sleep at two in the morning. One thing I didn't mention with um, in terms of the transport of patients is just make sure that your receiving institution is aware that you've thought of COVID and you're concerned about it. Um, I think a lot of... Um, Isolation precautions, muck-ups can happen due to poor communication between institutions, between wards, between teams, and things like that. So we need to be really diligent about communications around patient transfer. And that, that runs both ways.
0: Jared, I just want to ask one more question. Uh, if we have a patient who's got... No symptoms and is not confirmed to have COVID, but is self-isolating at home with someone who is a positive case. Do we need to um, use full PPE for them?
1: Hmm. Um, Depends on why they're presenting to hospital. If it's they're coming in for a checkup or something that could be deferred, I would defer anything non-urgent with them. It's worth being mindful however that they are in the observation period but it just depends on what they're coming in with covid does can cause diarrhea it can cause fatigue it can cause myalgias so i think being aware of some of the more subtle symptoms will be quite helpful as well and if you're thinking about it and you think it's plausible and you think it could be an atypical presentation of covid it's worth thinking about the ppe but i think if people are well no symptoms or irrelevant symptoms and say they're presenting with a broken arm, I don't think the PPE is necessary at that point in time. Again, um, we just need to be mindful about our resource management through the coming months because we will want to use PPE all the time. It does make us feel a lot better about our, our risk exposure, even if we're wearing it ineffectively. But we do need to save it for those times when we really need it. There will be nuanced questions, and they come up every day about whether we should be doing this or that.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of our Pondcat podcast. Thank you so much, Jared. Um, I want to wish you all the best for the weeks and the months ahead, and we may catch up again as this um, whole thing evolves. And to all you clinicians out there, take care of yourselves. Um, Thank you for all the work that you've been doing and the work that lies ahead. Um, And please let us know as a team what we can do to serve you as far as providing updates and um, information and guidance. guidance. So kia kaha. Ka kite (coughs) anō.